0: Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. This is my third trip to Northern Ireland this calendar year. I must have a connection here. My father was born in Carrickfergus, and in some ways, I inevitably feel that I'm coming back when I show up on this Emerald Isle. This week, we're going to be focusing most of our Bible study time on the prophecy of Isaiah. I'll say a bit more about that tomorrow night. But I thought that this evening, we would look at another passage. I have preached on this passage before. You you may wonder, when I first read it, what this has to do with worldwide mission. Uh, Trust me. Uh, you, You will see that it is right at the center of worldwide mission. I direct your attention to Matthew chapter 11. I'll read verses 2 to 19. Matthew chapter 11, 2 to 19. And the missionary impact of this passage will become clear in due course. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. When John, that is John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others, We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Let us pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Open our eyes that we may see and our hearts that we may love and our wills that we may obey. For Jesus' sake, amen. I wonder if there is anyone here who got up this morning, looked in the mirror and said, I am greater than King David. Or, I am greater than Isaiah. I am greater than Abraham. No? But this text authorizes you to do so. Did you notice verse 11? It's stunning. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, among those born of women, which is a reasonably comprehensive list. I can only think of one exception myself. There has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John the Baptist is greater than those who came before him. John the Baptist, according to Jesus, is greater than Abraham. John the Baptist is greater than, than King David. John the Baptist is greater than Isaiah. That's what the text says. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Are you amongst the least in the kingdom of heaven? But if you're amongst the least in the kingdom of heaven, and that makes you greater than John, and John is greater than all those who came before him, where does that put you? Now, clearly, no one is going to charge me with being greater than David from a military point of view. No one's going to say that I'm a greater prophet than Isaiah. But still, Jesus does say, truly I tell you this sort of asseveration to draw attention to the importance of his utterance, I tell you the truth. What does that mean and what does it have to do with world mission? The best way to find out exactly what it means is to follow the flow of the argument and that the argument itself develops in our passage in three steps. Number one, portrait of a discouraged Baptist. I am not speaking denominationally. (laughs) We're told that John the Baptist, verse 2, has been put in prison. And he hears while he is in prison what the Messiah was doing. usually Jesus refers to Jesus just as Jesus. But here he uses the title Messiah, what the Christ was doing, what the Messiah was doing, because Matthew wants the readers to realize just who it is, whom it is, that John the Baptist is doubting. He heard about the deeds of the Messiah. In Matthew's Gospel, that means great sermons like Matthew 5, 6, and 7, great miracles like chapters 8 and 9, great trainee team like chapter 10, all the deeds that Jesus was doing, his preaching, his miracles, his training. And when he hears it all, he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Now, you just must not avoid the obvious. John the Baptist is discouraged. He's having second thoughts. And at first, it's a little hard to understand why both the Old Testament and the New Testament present us with many stories of Christians, believers in the Old Testament who who endure persecution and opposition and are courageous and stalwart and who don't turn aside to the left or to the right. And here's John the Baptist, he's in jail. It's not even a bad deal. He, he, his disciples can still get to him. He can, they, they obviously can go and visit him, bring him some food perhaps and some clothing and carry messages to him. He's not in solitary. Is he wimping out? What is clear is that Jesus is not turning out to be the kind of Messiah that John the Baptist expected. Remind yourself of what John the Baptist had preached back in Matthew chapter 3, Verses 11 and 12. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In other words, he expected the Messiah to come with great blessing, the blessing of the end of the age. But great judgment, great winnowing, wheat and chaff, that's what he expected. And what are we getting from Jesus? Sermons that make him popular, miracles that make him popular, and a trainee school to handle all the popularity. Where's the fire? Where's the judgment? You you see, John the Baptist was truly announcing that Jesus was the Messiah. But at this juncture, the people's understanding of who the Messiah really is, really was, was, was thin. Consider Peter, for example, three chapters after ours, five chapters after ours. In Caesarea Philippi, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Some say this, some say that. Jesus say, what do you say? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus says, you're blessed, Simon, son of John. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. In other words, Peter got the answer right. But it was still only a partial right. What happens next? Jesus begins to talk about his impending death, his suffering, his impending torture, his, his, his crucifixion, his, his resurrection. And Peter, thinking that he's scored once theologically, he might try for a second pass. So he thinks he's equipped to qualify what Jesus says, to contradict him, in fact, to modify it, to teach Jesus a thing or two. "Never, never, Lord. That shall not happen to you. Messiahs win. They don't die. Especially a Messiah like you who can do all these miracles and command the course of nature and bring down fire from heaven and never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Which, of course, earns him the immortal rebuke: "Get behind me, Satan! You don't understand the things of God." In other words, even at this juncture, Peter, though he gave the right answer, prompted by God, Jesus is the Messiah, didn't have a category for a Messiah who would be crucified even when Jesus is dead and buried in the grave. Where is Peter? He's in an upstairs room, scared witless, with the other disciples. He's not up there praying and saying, yes, I can hardly wait till Sunday. He's scared witless. He still doesn't have a category for a crucified, resurrected Messiah. So it's not too surprising that John the Baptist is a little tilted toward the triumphant messianic coming. All oh, you say, wait a minute, Don, wait a minute, that's going a bit too far. Isn't it John the Baptist who, according to John the Evangelist, the fourth gospel, isn't he the one who points out Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Yes, he is, but be careful. The Jews had a category for a lamb who would be a warrior lamb. That sounds strange to our ears, but it came out of the reality that Israel was God's little lamb. But one day Israel would rise and win in their expectation. You can see that working out in the New Testament. Do you remember the great scene of Revelation 4 and 5? Revelation 4 is to Revelation 5 what a setting is to a drama. Revelation 4 is a massive depiction of the transcendent throne room of God. God transcendent, God immanent, God powerful, God terrifying. And then in chapter 5, the drama begins. In the right hand of him who sat on the throne was a scroll written on the inside and the outside. That scroll contains all of God's purposes for judgment and blessing for the entire universe. And the scroll is sealed. And while John watches, an angel with a loud voice sends forth a challenge to the entire universe. Who is worthy to approach this God just described in chapter 4 and take the scroll? and break the seals. In other words, you take away the symbolism. What that means is, who is worthy to serve as God's agent, to bring about God's purposes? And there is silence. No one in heaven. No one on the earth. No one in the abodes of the dead. John weeps. He weeps because in the symbolism of the vision, that means that God's purposes won't be brought to pass. And as he weeps, frustrated, because the promises of the kingdom are being dissolved before his eyes, the, the hopes of glory, of, of justice being done and being seen to be done, it, it, it won't happen because according to the symbolism of the vision, no one will serve as God's agent. The interpreting elder comes and touches John on the shoulder and says, Stop your crying, John. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the scroll. So I looked, John said, and I saw a lamb. Not two animals park side by side, a lion and a lamb. The point is, in the symbolism of apocalyptic, you can mix your metaphors. The lion is the lamb. The lion was announced, and when John looks up, he sees the lamb. But it's a strange lamb. A lamb with seven horns, a perfection of kingly authority, yet a slaughtered lamb. He was was a sacrificial lamb. He's he's the lion. He's, He's the king. He's the conqueror, and he's the slaughtered sacrifice. You see, all of that kind of symbolism would be clear enough to a first-century Jew because some expected the Messiah to be a conquering warrior lamb with seven horns. I suspect that John the Baptist was in that crowd when he cried, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Oh, yes, the word take away was not a word that was commonly used in sacrificial context, it means that he was coming in. He'd take away it all, right? He'd, he'd clean it up. He'd, he'd smash it. He'd, he'd bring down fire and judgment. I don't think there's any evidence anywhere that John the Baptist had an unambiguously clear understanding of the cross of Christ better than Peter did, and Peter didn't. So he's frustrated because His expectation of who the Messiah would be isn't turning out quite right. So, the disciples of John go and ask Jesus. And Jesus gives his reply in verses 4 and 5. And when he gives his answer... The answer is drawn almost entirely from Isaiah. You knew there would be a connection to Isaiah here tonight, didn't you? Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Those lines are mostly drawn from two passages in Isaiah. Here's Isaiah 35. Verses 5 and 6. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. So Jesus is saying that what is happening in his ministry is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Not only Isaiah 35, but Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Again, What's happening in Jesus' ministry is fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah. But Jesus leaves something out from both texts. Here's Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 again. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. But in the preceding two verses we read... Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not come. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Jesus leaves that bit out. Isaiah 61. Yes, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. But, verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus leaves that bit out. And of course, John the Baptist knew the text of Isaiah pretty well. He could quote Isaiah himself on occasion. So, John the Baptist knows that Jesus has left out something about vengeance in the context. Jesus knows that he's left something out, and he knows that John the Baptist knows that he's left out the vengeance. What's he saying? Is Jesus manipulating the Old Testament text? No, 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 no. The hint comes in verse 6, Matthew 11, verse 6. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, look at my ministry, the words that I say, the sermons I preach, the miracles I perform, the transformation of people, the healings, Look at the power. Look at the trainee mission. And you will see this is fulfillment of Old Testament Isaiahic prophecies regarding the coming of the end. And if the judgment has not yet dawned, well, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. The judgment will come, but the judgment's not yet. The judgment will come, but you've got to trust me. The fact of the matter is that John the Baptist didn't have all his eschatology sorted out. That's all right. Some of us don't have our eschatology sorted out either. And so his expectation of who the Messiah was was a little bit skewed. And Jesus is telling him, in effect, what I'm doing is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. See for yourself. So press on. Don't give up. Don't stumble. Don't quit. If the judgment that you're expecting is not here yet, believe me, it's coming. Press on. So here's the portrait of a discouraged Baptist. Then, second, the portrait of a defended Baptist. You see, it transpires that Jesus has been having this conversation with the followers of John the Baptist in front of a crowd that's listening in. So we read in verse 7 and following, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. You, you can guess what some people in the crowd are saying. Well, this John the Baptist preacher, he's, he's turned out to be a bit of a disappointment, wouldn't you say? A, a, a bit of a wimp. We, we thought he was pretty wonderful. Iron shirt, stuff of real courage, sounding and smelling and eating like the Old Testament prophets, and now he gets in prison and he turns out to be a wimp. Jesus won't have the crowd speaking badly about John. (laughs) Elsewhere, John the Baptist bears witness to Jesus. He must increase, but I must decrease. I'm not worthy to undo his sandal. But here it's Jesus speaking to the crowd about John, but he does it in a very different way from the way John speaks about Jesus. Listen carefully to what Jesus says as he bears witness to John. What did you go out into the desert to see? That is, when you went out to listen to John the Baptist, why did you go? Hmm? What did you expect? Why did you go to the trouble of going to the Jordan River or other places to listen to this roving desert preacher. Why did you go and listen to him? What did you expect? A reed swayed by the wind. Did you go out to watch John and listen to John because you thought he was a wimp? Implicitly he's saying, you don't have the right to criticize this man, this man of courage and prophetic gift and calling people to repentance. You don't have the right to dismiss him and write him off as a wimp. You don't have the right... So why did you go out to see him then? If not, what did you go out to see? Verse 8. A man dressed in fine clothes. Did you go to him because you thought he was posh? You know, suck up to somebody with a little bit of extra cash and maybe you'll get a better job. Maybe some of the blessing will come down upon your own head. Is that why you went out to see him? No, you knew he was a desert prophet, eating locusts and wild honey and slim and tough. No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Dig, dig, since it was the local king that had put John the Baptist in prison. So then, what did you go to see, huh? huh? Wasn't a reed? It wasn't somebody who was posh? What did you go to see, hmm? A prophet? Is that what you went out to see? Yes, Jesus says. And more than a prophet, more than a prophet, In what way is John the Baptist more than a prophet? Well, verse 10 tells us he is himself the subject of a particular Old Testament prophecy. This is the one about whom it is written from Malachi, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. John the Baptist, in other words, is more than a prophet in that he's the subject of the prophecy of Malachi. He is the one about whom Malachi is speaking when he announces a forerunner, an Elijah figure, who comes and announces the way of the visitation of God. That's what makes him greater, and that's when verse 11 shows up. Look at 11a again. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Do you see what's being said here? Supposing our chairman had sat down this evening after introducing me, and I got up and said, Brothers and sisters in Christ, I have a word from the Lord for you. Our chair is the greatest man ever born of woman, because he introduced me. I suspect by now you would have called people in white coats. <laughs> but that's exactly what Jesus says. He's not a wimp, he's a strong man, he's more than a prophet. But more than that, to him befell the immense privilege of introducing me. That's what Jesus says. And that's what makes him greater than Abraham. Oh, there's a sense in which Abraham points to Jesus. There's a sense in which David points to Jesus. There's certainly a sense in which Isaiah points to Jesus, and Malachi, and Jeremiah, and Habakkuk, and all the rest. There's a sense in which all of these great figures point to Jesus. But it fell to one man to point out Jesus and say, there, that's the one. The one whose sandals I am not worthy to undo. And that's what makes John the Baptist the greatest man born to a woman up to this point in redemptive history. For Jesus to say something like that either means he is a megalomaniac nut. He's so great because he introduced me, folks. Three cheers. Or he's simply telling the truth. He is himself Emmanuel, God with us. He is himself the Word made flesh. So, portrait of a discouraged Baptist, portrait of a defended Baptist, and finally, and here's the point portrait of an eclipsed Baptist. For in verse 11b, we're told, the least in the kingdom is greater than John. Now for verse 11 to cohere, you must assume that the standard of comparison in 11b is the same as the standard of comparison in 11a. Now I hope you're following. Let me try to explain it. In 11a, (coughs) John the Baptist is greater than all who came before him because he introduces Jesus. And in 11b, the least in the kingdom is greater than John because the least in the kingdom introduces Jesus more immediately and more clearly than John the Baptist could. John the Baptist introduced Jesus with greater immediacy and clarity than all of those who came before him. The least in the kingdom introduces Jesus with greater immediacy and clarity than even John the Baptist could. After all, this is Matthew 11. In three more chapters, John is going to lose his head, Uh, quite literally. He will never live to see the crucifixion. He will never live to see the resurrection of Christ. Peter did, the 12 did, but not John the Baptist. He belongs to the old era. But the least kingdom, the least Christian in the kingdom can point out Jesus more clearly, more immediately than John the Baptist could. I don't know who you are, but maybe one of you is here tonight and you've been a Christian for six weeks. You may not have a really good grasp of the Bible yet, but if you're a Christian at all, you can say something like this. Well, it's a big book. I don't understand all that much, but but I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I know that he came back to life on the third day, and that, that, that he reigns in, in glory now and he's coming back at the end of the age. I, I, I know I, I, I simply must cast myself upon him and trust him because he bore my sin in his own body on the tree. I, I, I see that. I'm, I'm acceptable before him, not because I'm such hot stuff myself, but, but, but because of who he is. That's a little clearer depiction of Jesus and the gospel than John the Baptist could have managed. And that's what makes the least in the kingdom greater than John. All the rest of the words in this paragraph to the end of verse 19, lend toward defending that interpretation. I don't have time to go through it all. Let me give you a couple of hints. Verse 12 is variously translated. I'll just tell you the truth. For all, from the days of John the Baptist, when Jesus started preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been advancing, advancing powerfully, and violent people have been raiding it, exploiting it. That is, the kingdom has been advancing, It's already here, It started, but violent people have tried to exploit it. That prepares the way for chapter 12, which is the beginning of the conflict chapters in Matthew, when the scribes and the Pharisees and others insist that what Jesus is doing in in kingdom power is is merely the work of Beelzebub. It's it's merely the work of the devil himself. the, The conflict becomes sharper and sharper and sharper. The kingdom has already started to dawn. It's already here, hence the miracles, the power, the transformation. It's already started. but but wicked people have merely tried to exploit it. In other words, the big bang at the end has not yet come, but the kingdom has has dawned, don't you see? For all the prophets and the law, that is the Old Testament, prophesied until John, until the coming of John the Baptist and his ministry, that set the dividing line. If you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. That is the Elijah figure in the prophecy of Malachi quoted in verse 10. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Then he gives a little vignette in verses 16 to 19 to explain that both Jesus and John had their own distinctive roles to play in redemptive history. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. We're supposed to picture two groups of kids in the village square. One group is entertaining and energetic and creative. Let's play, let's play weddings. You be the bride, you be the groom, you can be the minister. We'll have some singing and dancing. Anybody got a penny flute? We'll sing and dance, get something to eat, it'll be fun. And the other group, a bunch of downers, they say, oh, we played weddings last week, it's boring. Don't wanna play that. So the first group responds, well, okay, let's play funerals, you can be the corpse. (laughs) We need three or four people to carry the beer. And the other group says, don't want to do that either. It's boring. And then Jesus explains. Verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking. More like a funeral. Calling people to repentance. A severe man. And the whiners say, he has a demon. Anybody that's that ascetic, not only is he a bit off his head he's probably in league with the devil himself He can't even be happy just be mean the son of man the Lord Jesus came eating and drinking that is he went to parties he he was known not only for taking a good glass of wine on occasion but for converting water into wine just to make sure and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You can tell people by the company they keep, you know. He, he befriends prostitutes and, and tax collectors and sinners and, and, and actually drinks on occasion. We know we can write him off. So the ascetic they'll dismiss. The guy who goes to party they dismiss. No matter what God sends in their respective roles in redemptive history, people dismiss but wisdom is proved right by her deeds." In other words, wisdom, how you live before God, is vindicated in both cases, both in the deeds of John the Baptist, who comes calling the people to repentance with judgment and severity, and Jesus, who is announcing the dawning of the kingdom and whose wine celebrates in an anticipatory way the transforming wine of the kingdom of God. So here's the portrait of an eclipsed Baptist. Now, what has this got to do with us? Number one, the deepest Christian criteria for greatness are not the criteria of the world. Who's great in this context? Well, the least in the kingdom. The criteria are not beauty, not race, not youth, not wealth, not bloodlines, not administrative gift, not ethnicity, not popularity, not amount of education you've had. It's not any of those things. So that if you and I seek to find our identity in those kinds of things, we haven't understood this passage at all. What makes you greater than John the Baptist? On the axis that likewise makes you greater than David, or Moses, or Abraham, what makes you great? That you have a first from QUB? Which brings us to the second point. Christian criteria for greatness are radically Christ-centered. As we used to sing, knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing. If we stand in due course, as it were, at the portals of heaven, and are asked, why should we come in here? Why should you be allowed to come in here? What will we say? I looked after my family and left them some money in my retirement scheme. I was a good employer. I was a careful designer. I was a great mom. It's not that any of those things is bad. Don't always understand me. Or will we say, I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. So many of our discontentments arise from the fact that we are trying to place our self-identity in ephemeral things, in passing things, rather than in the fact that we are known of God and we know God. And that brings me to the point for this conference, third. Christian criteria for greatness are radically tied to proclamation and witness. The point is that the least in the kingdom, in verse 11, is not great because the least in the kingdom knows what it is to have sins forgiven. The the, the least in the kingdom knows what it is to say I'm part of the kingdom which is already dawned." and and which comes to consummation when Jesus comes back. The least in the kingdom is great, not simply because he or she knows that they've received the gift of the spirit as the down payment of the promised inheritance. That's not the point of verse 11. It's rather that the least in the kingdom can testify to who Jesus is with greater immediacy and clarity than those who came behind. There is a witness function. And Jesus thinks it's important. He says, I tell you the truth. So how is it then that we find some Christians who can go weeks and months and years without ever explaining to anyone why they're a Christian or what Christianity is or who Jesus is? when it's precisely such witness that establishes our greatness, according to Jesus. And don't misunderstand, this passage does not say <clears throat> the person with the greatest gift of the gab about the gospel is the greatest. It doesn't try to rank people within the kingdom. The comparison is between those who came before, who did not have such a good post-cross, post-resurrection grasp of who Jesus is and those who live this side of the cross and the resurrection. So this does not say Billy Graham's the greatest because he told more people about Jesus. It doesn't say that. It does say the least in the kingdom is greater than those who came before, John the Baptist and earlier, because it has fallen on us in the great mercy of God to have a better grasp of who Jesus is and what's been achieved in the coming of the gospel. And was grasped by all the believers up to John the Baptist and stretching back in time to Adam himself. Which means you and I ought to be praying that by God's grace, he will give us the courage, the joy, the contentment, the irrepressible delight in Christ and the gospel that just can't quite shut up. Because that's what makes us great. The notion of an utterly silent Christian is is almost a contradiction in terms. At very least, it's it's a denial of what gives us our most important significance namely, that we live this side of the cross and resurrection and point out who Jesus is. Shall flowers hide their beauty? Shall rainbows turn to gray? Shall thunderstorms be muzzled? Shall lambs forget to play? And shall I be silent at grace beyond degree? Before the cross, I count as loss what once was dear to me. Let us pray. Grant, merciful Heavenly Father, that we may perceive afresh what an immense privilege and joy it is to bear witness to King Jesus. Grant that we may see and grasp again and again and again that worldwide mission passion starts here.